Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. In our last look at the book of Acts last week, we learned about the great curse. Do you remember the Jews at Jerusalem had called down a great curse upon themselves? They had an awful, deadly oath that they had taken, a satanic pledge that they would murder Paul. And then they plotted with the Jewish leaders to carry the deadly act out. And last week, if you remember, we compared that with our own self-inflicted curse, the curse that hangs over the head of the whole of humanity. The curse of sin. The curse of sin that dwells in our nature from birth and that condemns us under the law of God. And we saw that this curse was bad news. Bad news for the Jews and seriously bad news for us because the wages of sin is death. We'll see something of that on Friday evening if you'd like to come along at half seven and to talk about the death of Christ and the death of the believer. Why people today are more terrified of death than ever before. But the wages of sin is death and the result of the curse is eternal damnation. And then last week we discovered the very best news of all. We found out that our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, bore that terrible curse in his own body for us at Calvary. He took my curse and he took your curse. He lifted it off us. We find another wee gem in the text too, for we notice that God ordains every situation to bring about his own purpose. Even when Paul was in that Roman prison in Jerusalem, He rescued Paul from the hands of those plotters through the intervention of someone whose name we don't even know, a nephew of Paul's. We took heart in the fact that even though we may be unknown in the great scheme of things, we may not be a Spurgeon or a Luther or a Martin Lloyd-Jones, but be assured God is using you for his purpose in his kingdom. And so with all that excitement over, Paul is still incarcerated in the Antonia Palace. He's in the Roman garrison barracks situated at the corner of the temple court in Jerusalem. And Lysias, the Roman commander of the garrison, is now convinced that Paul can't stay there. The news that the nephew brought meant that Paul is under serious danger. And so he decides the best thing to do is to get him off his hands, to hand him over to the Roman civic authorities. And that means Paul has to go to Caesarea, the seat of the governor, the Roman capital of Judea, to appear before the governor, a man called Felix. And just in case he's ambushed along the way, he sends a convoy of troops 
with this one man. Look at it in verse 23. He called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen, threescore and ten, that's seventy cavalry troops, and spearmen, two hundred. Now, I, I, I'm, no, I'm hopeless at counting. Um, I might have told you before, I failed my maths O-level with distinction. But even I can work out that that's 200 and 200 is 470. 470 armed troops to defend one man on the road for 75 miles of a journey. And better still, Paul's not being expected to walk. He's going to be put on a horse. And verse 24 tells us, provide them beasts that they may set Paul on. Not just one beast, several beasts. So that should the horse tire, another horse is available to carry him. To make sure that he gets there safely. And that brings us to Acts chapter 23, verse 25. And it's neatly divided the rest of the passage into two parts. The first part is a letter. And the second part is the formal act of handing Paul over from military custody into formal civic Roman custody. So we're going to look at the letter first of all, see what that's about. And then we're going to look briefly at this handover. Let's look at it first of all, the letter. So look at verse 25. He wrote a letter after this manner. See, Felix needs some documentation, doesn't he? You just can't hand over a prisoner. He needs something about the prisoner. This prisoner is so important or so dangerous that he has to be accompanied by 470 heavily armed men. So the commander writes a letter and he explains the events that have happened when Paul visited the temple in Jerusalem. A question arises. This is an official document, going from one official in the Roman Empire, carried by a high-ranking soldier, to another official in the Roman Empire. How does Luke find out about it? How does Luke find out about an official document? Well, nowadays that's easy, of course. Some civil servant would leak it. Not a problem. How do you find out anything? How do you find out that there's a party in number 10 Downing Street when all the rest of us were all under lockdown? Some civil servant took a photograph from a neighbouring building. Well, how did Luke, the author of the book of Acts, find out that there was this letter and what was in it? Well, it must have been read out. The Bible's completely open about this. It says here that he wrote a letter after this manner. What does that mean? Well, Luke is saying here, not this is what was in the letter, but this is something like what the letter said. This is the nature of the letter that would be written. 
In other words, he's telling us here that he hasn't got the letter. What he has is a second-hand account of what the letter says. The Bible is completely honest about this. And remember, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing in retrospect. He is faithfully recording history. Now, from my point of view, the fact that Luke doesn't have access to the letter, the fact that he is recording what the letter said secondhand, and the fact that he tells us he's doing that is an authentication of the historical accuracy of the book of Acts. He's not pretending that he's seen a letter. He's saying it's written after this manner, to this effect to use um, another translation. Now, who sent the letter? Well, in verse 26, we get his name. Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor. That's the first time in the book of Acts that we find out who this Roman commander was. His name is Claudius Lysias. Now, Lysias is a Greek name. It's not a Roman name. So he's a Greek. And the Roman Emperor Claudius has offered Greeks the opportunity to become Roman citizens if they paid him for it. Claudius wanted some money. And he decided one of the best ways of raising money was to offer Roman citizenship to anybody who could buy it. The very likelihood is that Lysias was a Roman citizen who had bought his citizenship. So when Lysias heard that Paul was a Roman citizen, he'd been surprised. Turn back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 25. We'll see something about this man. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto him, unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman? and uncondemned. When the centurion heard that, he went out and told the chief captain, that would be Lysias, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, to Paul, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yes. Verse 28. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, but I was freeborn. So there's Lysias. He's a man who has bought his Roman citizenship. He's probably become Lysias, Claudius, uh, Claudius Lysias, whenever he became a citizen. Claudius was the emperor at that time, and he would have taken the name Claudius as a mark of respect. The letter... The man who wrote it was Claudius Lysias. But who's it addressed to? Look at verse 26 again. It's written here, Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor, Felix. Now, I suppose in Northern Ireland, we don't really have social classes, sure we don't. Well, we have very posh people. And we have people who are anything but. But the days whenever we looked up to people for their, their breeding and their class status, 
We don't really have that, not so much as they do in England. We don't really have that so much here. Roman society was class-ridden. The lowest free citizen class in the Romans were the plebs, the plebeians. They were the working classes. The highest class were the senators. And between the plebeians and the senators were the aquites, the so-called equestrian class. We would call them knights. If you play chess, you will play with a knight, two knights in each team, in each side, and that little knight will be a horse. The Aquians, the Aquites, were the, were the Roman middle class. And these knights would have been addressed as your excellency. So we would assume that this man, um, the governor Felix, was the most excellent. He would have been one of the equestrian class. And the fact is, he was nothing of the sort. He was, in fact, the ultimate social climber. He was a man who had begun life as a slave, but he had an influential brother, a man called Pallas. And Pallas had become a good friend to Nero, and through nepotism, Felix had risen to be governor of Judea, and then he married well, he wooed and became, uh, and married aristocratic women, not just one. He married and divorced, and married and divorced, and remarried. So he married three times, and every one of them was a woman of great importance. And Tacitus, the Roman historian, records that Felix never managed to shake off his old slavish attitudes and his manners. He had bad manners. Felix was completely unscrupulous. He even hired professional thugs to murder some of his own close friends. That's the man Paul's going to stand before. That's the man he will give an account of his faith before. Who was Felix? He was a self-serving, uncaring, uncouth, ruthless man. A man who would have your throat slit and think nothing of it. So we've got the letter and the sender and the addressee. Now let's see what Lysias writes. Look at verse 27. Lysias is a politician of sorts, and he's writing to a politician. So what do politicians do when they write letters? Do you know? It begins with the letter L. They do. (laughs) They tell lies. Somebody once said, how do you know when a politician's telling lies? And the answer to that is, his lips are moving. And so here is Lysias. I can't say that of them all. Sure, I can't. That would be unfair. Verse 27. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Do you see what's wrong with that account? It's not true. 
It's simply not true. It's not at all what happened. Lysias here is being totally disingenuous. As a modern politician might have said, he's being economical with the truth. He's letting on that he rescued Paul from the howling mob of Jews that were in the temple court because he knew that Paul was a Roman and he rode into the temple court with his men and he rescued a Roman citizen. Now, that passage that we read from chapter 22 a minute ago tells us the true story. Lysias here leaves out this minor detail that he'd rescued Paul simply because he wanted to stop a riot. He'd rescued Paul and he leaves out the minor detail about how he's about to have an unconvicted citizen of Rome beaten with great force before he discovered Paul's Roman citizenship and had to draw back. Again, I, I, I point out to you simply this. And if anything here, what we're seeing is biblical accuracy. This is a politician doing what politicians do. And the Bible is absolutely 100% accurate. Another example of real life actually happening here on the biblical page. The biblical narrative true to life. Verse 28, let's see this declaration of innocence. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their counsel. Verse 29, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing led to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. So I lifted him. Did nothing wrong. So I just arrested him. You see, we could do that back in the 70s. We had an arrestable offence back in the 70s called disorderly behaviour. And we had a power of arrest for disorderly behaviour. Now, what's disorderly behaviour? Could be looking at me the wrong way, could be shouting abuse at the police. By throwing a brick. It could be burning a bus. Disorderly behaviour could be anything. If I considered that someone had been disorderly on the streets, I only had to say, I'm arresting you for disorderly behaviour and let the court sort it out. Or let the sergeant throw him out later on in the evening. And that's likely what happened. What usually happened was if somebody was guilty of disorderly behaviour, what would usually happen is we'd seen some yob messing about in the street and would say, he needs taught a lesson. I'm arresting you for disorderly behaviour. Back up into the station, charge him, caution him, put him in the cell. The next morning the sergeant would kick him out in the street. Behave yourself from now on. You've been let off with a caution. It was an easy way to stop potential trouble developing in the streets. Now, the Roman Empire was a police state. 
And peace among its citizens was maintained by heavy-handed policing. If you step out of line, if you cause a breach of the peace, if it looks like you're going to be guilty of disorderly behavior, then you will be arrested and you will be punished. And unfortunately, in Roman days, it wasn't just the sergeant letting you out in the morning. It was being punished severely. Paul, under the law of Rome, had done nothing wrong. It says so here. Done nothing worthy of death or bonds. So why is he in prison? Why is he being sent to the governor? Because of the possibility of disorderly behavior on the streets. He's been arrested for disorderly behavior. So a decision is taken in verse 30. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Decision was made. We'll send him off to the high court. Can't send somebody up to the county court or the crown court to answer a minor charge like disorderly behaviour. So Lysias has to explain why this man is being sent before trial, for trial before Felix. And here it is. It's another potential breach of the peace. Verse 30. The Jews are going to kill this man. So therefore I have to get him up the chain. I have to get him away so that there's no breach of the priests. There's a dispute, and the place for that dispute is not in the Antonia Palace among the guards. It's in the courts of the land. And so the letter is ready, and the prisoner is secured to his horse, and the convoy of troops are ready to move out, and Paul is one step closer to Rome. Book of the Month Follow the link to buy your copy. During the months of July and August, we'll be looking at John Knox, Scotland's reformer. If you'd like to learn more about John Knox, and there is a lot to learn, there's plenty of resources online. And if you prefer books, a good starting point is an excellent little primer, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. It's just 100 pages, and it's packed with fast-moving information about Knox, and there's a link to buy the book on www.semper-reformata.com throughout July and August. Just follow the link in the episode notes. The book costs just £5.49. A small part of that goes to support this podcast. The Book of the Month, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. And that's where we see his journey and his reception. This huge contingent of troops set out, but they didn't go all the way to Caesarea. The journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea, about 75 miles. Around halfway point lies the town of Antipatris, or Antipatris. And there the mounted troops turned back. The journey between Jerusalem and Antipatris was Jewish, and it's hilly. It's the ideal location for a, a hostile ambush. But when they get to Antipatris, 
The soldiers on horseback are no longer needed. So after an overnight camp, they return to Jerusalem. The rest of the journey is flat and open and mostly Gentiles. The infantry no longer needed. Cavalry can ride at a much further speed. So let's see which goes back. The soldiers, it was commanded them, took Paul. The morrow they left the horsemen to go with them. The horsemen go on. The foot soldiers turn back and they ride on to Caesarea. And there Paul is brought before this terrible man, Felix. Felix only wants to know one thing at this point. Where are you from? The letter has been read out. Look at verse 34. The governor had read the letter. That's likely how Paul and later Luke find out what was in it. And he asks of what province he was and when he understood that he was of Cilicia. Verse 35, he says, I will hear thee when thine accusers are also come. So Paul's to wait. And he's placed under arrest in the praetorium, the palace built in Caesarea by Herod the Great, until the Jews also arrive, presumably walking, so that Felix can hear both sides of the story. Right, that's the history. What can we learn before we finish, very briefly? Well, the first thing is that there is a theme that's picked up in this passage that's running not only through this whole chapter, but through the whole book. Paul's calling here is being accomplished. If there's one thing that we ought to understand here, it is that although Paul has been lifted out of the court of the temple, and although he's been arrested, and he's being sent to the governor for trial, it is the Lord who is directing his steps. I want you to see this. So I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 9, to Paul's calling and his commission. So in Acts chapter 9, in verse 13, we see Ananias giving a message to Paul. Let's see it. Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. Now he's done that. And kings. He's about to do that. And the children of Israel. Verse 16, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's a wonderful calling, isn't it? Imagine going to your commissioning service to be a missionary and somebody telling you you can look forward to a life of suffering, great suffering. 
Ananias of Damascus was afraid to approach Paul. But God reassures him that Paul is a chosen vessel who will bear, testify, bear his name before Gentiles and before kings. And in doing that, he will suffer greatly. And he has already borne the name of the Lord before the Gentiles. He has already suffered. And now the second part of that commission is going to be fulfilled. He's going to testify before kings, before rulers. He's going to testify before Felix in Acts chapter 24. And he's going to testify before Festus in Acts chapter 25. And he's going to testify before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And he's going to testify before Caesar himself. And here's the underlying truth. Here's the application for us. God is in control of every single aspect of Paul's life, even his arrest. He's under arrest and he's going to the highest court in the empire and he's going to stand before a secular judge and he's going to give an account and he's in a perilous and a dangerous place. He's in a place of deep loneliness and despair. Events are outside his control but there is one in control and it's not Agrippa or Festus or Felix or even Caesar. It is the Lord God, the King of the universe and his perfect plan is being enacted in Paul's life. Right. So what about us? What is God doing in your circumstances? If you're discouraged or worried, if you're going through the darkest of times, then the message of all of this chapter, as we have seen, is to trust that God knows what is best. Trust the Lord. It runs right through the chapter. The Lord stands with Paul in his loneliness. The Lord ordains a boy to come to his aid. The Lord brings him to relative safety away from the Jews. The Lord provides opportunities for Paul to fulfill his divine calling and to witness for Christ. The God who ordains Paul's ways has ordained every minute of every day in your life and in mine. So trust him and be faithful to him. And he will bring you through. For his will is perfect. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.